0: The U.S. consumer has been resilient to rising inflation, but for how much longer? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform, because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of June 6th, 2022. And this week, amid lots of noise in the media about recession risk, Julia and I are checking in on a key pillar of economic growth in the United States, the consumer. And to do so, we have a very special guest joining us today, our team's chief economist and one of our portfolio managers, Paul Christensen. Paul, thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. To add an extra layer of fun today, I've asked Julia and Paul to actually argue opposite sides of what's going on with the U.S. consumer. Paul is going to help us understand why the consumer has been so resilient this year, while Julia is going to be pointing out what drags on U.S. households. But I'll disclaimer that I'm not holding them personally responsible for these views, just having them argue different sides of the coin. A uh, good old-fashioned economic debate, music to my ears.
1: And it makes sense to structure today's discussion like this because it is a debate in investor circles. And it really comes down to for how long consumption can stay resilient given inflation. And we don't have the crystal ball there, but this can give listeners a nice sense of what we consider as we do our analysis and what we
0: like to debate on a daily basis in the office. Oh, and we do debate on a daily basis. So kicking us off then, as Julia said, Consumers have been quite resilient this year in the face of higher prices, maybe even surprisingly so. Paul, what is the consumer support base getting them through this difficult time?
2: One important support pillar is the labor market. It's the strongest literally in decades. Unemployment is at 3.6, wages are rising. There are over 11 million jobs available, which is close to an all time high. Surveys show the majority of US consumers say that jobs are plentiful, and the number of consumers that say that jobs are hard to get is pretty much at an all-time low.
0: That's pretty robust. So I assume our listeners can assume that Americans are feeling pretty good about things. Uh Oh, but I'm here to say that it is the opposite. And I don't even have to make
1: this argument. It's almost made for me. There was a recent CNBC poll from April, which showed that 81% of respondents expect a U.S. recession this year. Then, per the BMO Real Financial Progress Index, which is an indicator of how consumers feel about their personal finances and whether they're making financial progress, a quarter of Americans believe that they are going to have to delay retirement to cope with inflation and Google searches for the term recession remain at levels similar to what we saw during the 2008 global financial crisis. Oh, and it's not a laughing matter, but the University of Michigan puts out a consumer sentiment survey, and the latest read from that survey
0: is at the lowest point in a decade. I guess we'll have to call her Dr. Doom Herman, and I've asked you to argue strictly one side of the argument, so I can't be mad about what I'm about to say, but you are sort of blatantly leaving out the second of the two consumer sentiment surveys out there, which is the conference board survey. And while the University of Michigan survey, which you pointed out, focuses on inflation, which is scary, the conference board survey focuses on the job market. And as Paul said, the job market is doing really well. And so that conference board survey is looking very solid. So here we have this tug of war on American households right now, the job market versus inflation, basically. But that's just sentiment. And so we have to ask, even if consumers are feeling mixed or even concerned, how are they actually acting? So Paul, I'll put this to you. In other words, how are these two sides of the confidence coin playing out in the hard data?
1: There's
2: no doubt there's a tug of war and it's Also, no doubt that many consumers are worried, especially when you focus on prices that keep going up. Wages are rising, but they haven't really kept up the cost of living. But even so, consumers are still spending. During the pandemic, spending on goods, merchandise, electronics, furniture went up because people couldn't spend on services, vacations and restaurants and stuff. But now we're seeing a rotation back towards services and service spending is now growing. People are traveling. And we're also seeing pretty solid goods demand still out there. So consumers are really spending and they're not afraid to take out some credit to do it. We're seeing credit card lending also up 8% year over year.
1: But Paul, isn't that run up in credit card balances bad? If you pair that with the fact that U.S. savings rate, it's fallen to 4.4%. And that's well below the pre-pandemic average of around 6%. And it's certainly low if we compare it to the spike that it had During the pandemic, where, as you said, consumers really weren't able to spend, so the savings rate increased. What all of this is telling me is that if people can't save and they're essentially taking out very high interest rate
0: credit card debt to finance current expenditure, it doesn't inspire much confidence. Well, that's a good point and doesn't sound very good. So, Paul, we'll have to put it back to you. Are, Are people paying those credit card balances or are we seeing an uptick in defaults?
2: We're not seeing an uptick of default at this point. There's no doubt. Many households are now feeling the pinch of higher gas prices. Fortunately, we're seeing delinquencies remaining at a very low level. So we haven't seen any pickup there so in any significant way. And the average American household actually has a very strong balance sheet with a lot of savings and savings accounts. And that was a combination and due to a combination of lower spending for large parts of the population during the pandemic and also significant fiscal stimulus
0: very good point and i'll i'll just mention for our listeners that this debate around savings not just what the savings rate is which is quantifiable but you know where it's gone what exactly people have have saved on or where they saved what balances they've paid down it's it's actually more difficult to track than you'd think because it crosses all different kinds of spending data credit card data as julia was pointing out etc it's it's a lot of different factors but when you bring it to the portfolio level this excess savings argument is really the swing Vote in the consumer discussion right now. So Paul, I'll ask you one more question, which is, do we have our own estimate of how much was saved? Those have varied so widely on the street.
2: Yes. One way of estimating is to look at what would have happened if consumers had continued to save and spend like they did in 2019 throughout the pandemic, 2020, 2021. And if they had done that, they would have spent $2.5 trillion more in the last two years but they didn't, mostly because many vacations, gatherings, activities, etc. were simply canceled and that money wasn't spent. So essentially, that left consumers with more than $2 trillion of savings, money that they would normally have spent, but didn't. And of course, the question is, how long can that keep fueling spending? Right now, we are starting to see that money being spent. Travel is picking up, vacations are being taken, parties are being held. And importantly, that's a source of demand that can help critical support for demand through the headwinds we are facing from higher gas prices right now.
0: So I guess that does support the idea that we're just waiting for the consumer tailwind to run out of steam over time. Yeah, that's
2: a fair way to put it. It's also about where these success savings lie. and As you can imagine, it's quite uneven as higher income households were typically able to work from home and make money through the pandemic, yet constrained in the spending on vacations, restaurants, et cetera, while lower income households had less of a buffer and they were more likely to experience unemployment. So no doubt, higher-income households now hold the majority of these savings. But high-income households are also very important for the direction of overall consumer spending. The top 10 of income earners account for more than $2 trillion of spending each year. And if you look at the bottom 10% in comparison, they account for less than $400 So there's almost six times as much spending power at the top as there is at the bottom. So that's an important consideration when we're trying to predict the overall growth rate of spending. It's also the case that the top fifth of consumers account for around 40% of all spending.
1: Wow, yeah. I mean, I can't really argue with those numbers. And it makes sense that the rich have the largest brute force impact on consumer power. But I'm sort of taken aback by the implications of this on inequality, which are pretty wild and disheartening. Wages in those lowest income brackets and the lowest educational brackets are actually seeing the strongest rate of growth nowadays. So that brings a little bit of comfort on the wage front. But the issues are, you know, as you mentioned, Paul, those wages on aggregate are still still negative when adjusted for inflation. They're not keeping up with prices. So when we take into account that lower income segments of the population also spend a larger share of their income on staples like gas and food, which are driving the majority of the higher prices that we're seeing, it paints a pretty troubling picture. And I would also add that, you know, it's not just about high versus low income, but also about dependency on gasoline for everyday lives right now. I think the three of us are really lucky. We live in New York. I don't even have a car. It doesn't make sense for me to have a car. But a lot of people are very dependent on their cars to be able to work. And so those that can't work from home and live in areas without mass transit are getting hit very
0: hard by inflation right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. It suggests that even if overall consumption is held up by the purchasing power of these higher income segments, there's a large portion of the U.S. that's going to be feeling a different story, which is a point in actually both of you are making. So since you're kind of agreeing on something, which isn't the point of a debate, let me throw in a bit of a curveball as my parting gift, housing. We got a record low month-on-month figure for new home sales last month. Makes sense because of course we see financial conditions tightening, mortgage rates going up, but housing is one of the most important and largest stores of wealth for American households. So how do developments like this in the housing market play into your views on the consumer? That's
2: a fair point. There's no doubt the housing market is cooling. We've seen over the last 12 months the most rapid rise in mortgage rates since 1994, almost 30 years, and that has caused a lot of potential home buyers to feel a little bit of a sticker shock. But at the same time, the supply of housing is an important factor here too, because if we look at the inventory of homes for sale, that is extremely tight. That supply has been constrained. Home builders are facing labor shortages, material shortages, and the fact that supply is so constrained. Probably means that home prices are going to be underpinned and there's going to be structural demand for housing for for quite some time to come. And that means home prices could remain elevated for quite some time and maybe there could be more upward pressure. What that does is it makes homeowners feel that there's a larger buffer. It makes them more confident about spending and it makes them able to take out a loan if they should need one. So it's something that's helping a lot of consumers.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that wealth effect on the podcast in the past where, you know, if those asset prices remain elevated, that's going to help homeowners. But my my counterpoint is that it only helps homeowners. On the other side of it, you have renters, including myself, who are facing much higher prices. So, it seems to me like housing is needing to walk a very fine line right now where we all want the housing market to hold up in the name of economic stability, but I worry that it'll be another
0: component exacerbating the inequality story. Both very good answers to my my curveball there. But let's just put a wrap on the debate and come up with a, a little bit of a of a story here for our listeners. Our team's overall view, stemming from these debates we're having all the time, is that we expect the consumer to hold up this year, so that Paul's side effectively wins in terms of our perspective moving forward, and we expect that to be the case into 2023 as well. Paul and his team have a recession model, which is pointing to a relatively low risk of recession in the coming 12 months. But if that view changes, you'll hear about it here. That takes us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And given that we've presented such an intricate debate on consumption, we of course have to follow up, let the rubber hit the road on that theme and investing.
1: So given that our view on consumption is quite nuanced, so is the asset allocation takeaway. Our team has leaned into some defensive equity sectors, which traditionally include real estate, utilities, consumer staples, and healthcare. And that is a reflection of the view that consumption is still resilient, but we'd prefer to be in the segments of consumption where demand is less elastic, as in demand is more likely to sustain even when prices rise.
0: Whereas on the consumer discretionary side, there's some solid nuance too. On one hand, you have reopening in leisure, hotels, airlines, and as we know, travels come roaring back, but discretionary also includes durables, higher ticket items from cars to kitchen appliances, which have not only been expensive, but also hard to find in recent months. And in the most recent University of Michigan Sentiment Index, which we mentioned earlier, the durables component had its lowest reading since the inception of that component in the index in 1978. So friends, investors, we have to stay flexible. <music> Coming up next, this Friday is a very exciting day because we get May inflation figures. And I don't even need to say why those are top of mind. And the June edition of the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey, which we've mentioned multiple times in this episode, will come out on Friday as well. Stay tuned. That's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and by clicking the insights tab. Till then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. And I'm Julia Herman. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benemots and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied Upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nilife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.